If you're a child and want to go to Sunday school, this would be a good time to do it. The reading today is Psalm 139. In case you're having a deja vu and think we already did this one, we're doing it again today because it's so good it bears repeating. And we'll continue to further explore this wonderful Psalm of David. Hear the word of Lord. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You sit when I sit down, and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in, behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for the darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. O oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O oh Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? Hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning little uh, commercial for something that I read this morning. I haven't finished reading it, but uh, uh, there's a, an article, a column in today's New York Times 
Uh, if you go to the website, you'll follow the link that says, what do you say to the angel of death at a, when, when you meet at a party? I think that's what the article's called. What do you say to the angel of death when you meet at a party? Uh, this article is written by a young woman named Kate Bowler. And she's a professor, actually, at Duke University in the United States. She, I think, she, I don't know if she's Canadian. I think she might be Canadian. Um, but she certainly spent a lot of time growing up in Canada. And she did a PhD dissertation on, uh, she's a Christian woman, she did a PhD dissertation on prosperity gospel churches. Um, and it's very even-handed. Um, she's, she's, it's not polemic. In other words, it's not a fight. But while she was doing the research for that dissertation, she was diagnosed with non-curative cancer. And she's young. I think she was in her late 20s at the time. And uh, she has actually had a couple of columns and articles in, in the New York Times. And this is a, a, a fairly lengthy one. And uh, I've already been texting back and forth to Jason Biasi, who sometimes comes here and preaches, because he was at Duke University as well. And he knows Kate Bowler. And he has very high regard for her. And we were both just texting our awe at some of the things that she said. She talked about one instance. So the, the concept of meeting the angel of death at a party is basically like, what do you say to someone who you know is maybe dying, especially if they're young? And it goes through all the kinds of people that she meets. There are those who tell her, you know, this is a lesson for you. There are those who say, it'll be better to be with God. There are those who say, we have a cure. It's either prayer or protein shake or something, right? And Or she said, atheists tend to say the following things. Uh, she recounts one story how when, one time when she was in the hospital, it looked like she might be closer to death. Someone came, a friend came to visit her who had just been in Australia and, and was raving about how wonderful Australia is. This is just loving and said, it is absolutely fantastic. You should go there sometime. And Kate Bowler reflects in saying, I realized that I people thought I could no longer speak the language of the future. She's a good writer. And when Jason and I were back and forth, I'd like to get her to do a tasting room theology one time if she's well enough to come up, or even do it by video or something. We're trying to work that out. But Jason and I were texting back and forth, and he, I said how much I loved her writing. and He said, I could read it for you if I looked up the text, but it said, God continues to raise up witnesses. Um, she speaks very well of her faith. That has nothing to do with this sermon, except to say um, this, the Lord is working. She has mature, healthy, prayerful, Christian, faithful reflection and love for all these people who think that they know just what she needs. It's, it's good. So, we'll go from that to uh, 13th and Lonsdale. You ready? You been to 13th and Lonsdale lately? There's a camel there now. It costs $200,000, but if you're the kind of person that says, that's what our government's spending money on, the government didn't spend any money on that. All right? Now you can get developers to do anything because property's worth so much, so the developer paid $200,000 for that camel. Anyway, what's supposed to open behind it soon is, I think, a shopper's drug mart, but also what else will we be graced with on the nor uh, in North Vancouver relatively soon? Whole Foods, or as some people call it, Whole Paycheck. Now, do you, know, do you know who owns Whole Foods? Amazon. Now, this, is like, this isn't a Bible quiz. It's a current events quiz. And you do really well at current events quizzes. Anyway, um, 
What happened in Amazon world this week? They opened a store, a bricks and mortar store. But let me show you, just got two little one minute clips about that store. Did you see how just one second ago it was working? Oh, there it goes. Amazon Go is the latest effort by Amazon just to make shopping incredibly easy. When I was there, I got an early glimpse. Their vision for this is you walk in, you grab something, you walk out. You have this app called Amazon Go. It has a sort of QR code that you use to scan in when you get there. The gates open, you go in, you grab whatever you want from a shelf, and then you literally just walk out. And the way the system works is it tracks what it is that you actually take with you. Amazon didn't go into a lot of detail how they do this, but it's basically through using sensors that are in the shelves. They also have hundreds of cameras hundreds hanging on the ceiling. Cameras. It basically just like tracks you in the store and you're linked to that account. I didn't have to interact with anybody. I didn't have to wait at all. There were no lines. It literally was just as fast as I wanted to shop and then I was out of there. It's set up through your Amazon account okay, in the ready? Amazon Okay, we'll go, go to the next clip. This is a clip, a little kind of news clip on a brief reflection. Yeah, it was a concept that um, I thought that they would struggle with, uh, but it was way easier than expected. Um, I mean, just being able to walk out uh, and uh, not interact with anyone um, was was amazing. Yeah. Praise the Lord. Okay, that's good. That's enough, isn't it? You get where I'm going with this, don't you? Um, I trust me. I'd like to shop at a place like that sometimes, right? Just ease, convenience. But there's something culturally happening here. And you could see it in his smile. I saw three news reports on it, and in every one of those news reports, every person said the same thing. And as they said it, they smiled. Like what they were saying was a kind of nonsense. Yes, it was wonderful, it was really easy. I didn't have to talk to anybody, and they would smile. Something's happening culturally. And more and more, you don't have to talk to anybody. Made a number of purchases this week myself, some of them online. I bought a book last week. Buy books most weeks, sorry, anyway. Uh, and I purchased it. I, I went online and bought it at 10 a.m. And by 2 p.m. or 3 or something, it was at my front door. And, thanks be to God, didn't have to talk to anybody. <laughs> Removing human interaction. What's the plus of it? I get it. And I don't want to castigate it as negative and say, the church needs to stand against you know, Amazon Go. Um, but it's reflective of something that happens in our lives, our culture as a whole, and our churches. And I'll tell you, as pastor, I see it in the church. And it's basically me, me, me. My judgment of whatever it is will be based upon if I felt what I wanted to feel and if it worked for me, if it was easy. And we have oftentimes big churches which are not necessarily bad. Some small churches are bad, some big churches are bad, and others are good. But one of the things that big churches struggle with is that this becomes part of church culture that you could come and be there and talk to nobody and go. And you could, I guess, say on the way out, it was wonderful. I heard the sermon and I didn't have to talk to anybody. Psalm 139, David, who is for us this terribly faulty 
which for me makes it better, guide in the ways of faith. If you have Sunday school teachers who would say, be like David, before they finish that sentence, they would say, well, not in the following ways. He's a real person. And he demonstrates that he understands, even all the way back then, that it isn't me, me, me. Last week, we spoke about the heart of this psalm, which is the reality and the understanding that David has that he is known by God. And this will form the foundation of his spirituality and his trust in God. I am known by you. This comes before, always before, any consideration of the other, what other people need, what's wrong with the world, what needs to change, how do I get to God. Before any of that is, I am known by you. It's a reversal of the direction of religion, religion in general, and this is whether it's actual religious enterprise, like faith, um, or like faith communities and the structures that are set up, or if it's the new kind of religion, like how to care for your body, right? Or how to be your best you, which is a religious enterprise itself. Religion teaches you, and some of it works, various ways to get to whatever the goal is. Here's how to get to God. David shows us in this psalm that the heart of true spirituality is the reversal of that direction, not you getting to God, but that you are known by God, God gets to you. And of course, the peak of this in Christian understanding is the incarnation and the cross. You shouldn't come in here and look at this cross without asking yourself, what does it mean that God has come to us, to me, that God knows me? See that different direction? In that, you become freed from those self-centered evaluations. I told you a little bit about Barry and Mark McConnell. Those who were here last week and I told the cookie sheet story, Mark was so perfect this morning. First thing she said to me with a smile on her face and it was wonderful. She came up and she said, that story you told last week? And I said, yes. She said, it wasn't cookie sheets. It was anvil pans. Thanks be to God. I told you a little bit about Barry and how Barry, for me, and different people will represent this for you in different ways, but Barry is one of the people in in my life, in my experience, who, for some reason, when I prayed for Barry, uh, and when I reflect on, on what I knew of him now, he represents this concept that we are each of us known by God. So that in, in Barry, you're dealing with someone who isn't necessarily the most demonstrative of his faith. He's not going to pray the longest prayers, but he's faithful, dutiful, and he's known by God. And when I pray for you sometimes, God lays it on my heart. You know that I know them, right? So I have a peak story to tell you in my prayer life for Barry at the end of the sermon. What you notice in Psalm 139, images about God and David, what many of those images are declaring is this basic truth, that wherever David goes, God is already there. And for me, when I read it, I become overwhelmed when the language says, if I go to the far side of the sea, or in the ESV it says, if I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. 
In other words, David's trying to write, if I could take the wings of the morning, and those wings of the morning would take me to the far edge of the sea, then you're suspended in that. Then those next words, even there, even there, you are with me. Even where there's nothingness, and in the cosmological understanding of the day, flat earth, the edge of the sea, what came after that was despair, darkness, nothingness. And David said, even there, you're before me. This separation, or the breaking of you being first and center, right? So your experience, because I can do it even in church, your evaluation of church. It's natural, so I'm not just condemning it. I think it's good to feel things. I'm pretty emotional myself. But if you become the gauge for how things are working, right? So whether it's church or shopping or whatever else it is, you become the center of how you see the world. And it's no secret that most people in life never grow past that. We, most of us never attain the spiritual freedom that comes with accepting that we're not the center of all things. I wrestle against when people accuse you know, younger people of being like this because that very accusation in itself <laughs> demonstrates the problem. We ought to be able to say, here, here is how I am like that. And one of the ways I'm like that is I so quickly accuse other people. There's some spiritual progress. You remember Timothy McVeigh, one of the people implicated and guilty in the Oklahoma City bombing, a terrorist. And he was executed for killing these hundreds of people. And his last statement before he was executed, he read the poem Invictus, which ends with, I am the captain of my fate. I am the master of my soul. It's terribly lifeless in my estimation. Christian faith would say, I hope lovingly, nope. You're not the captain of your fate and the master of your soul. And if you look at Timothy McVeigh declaring that poem at that time, you would have to say, how is that so? David beautifully declares that God is first. And in it, God, this is there also. It's hard to see after an example like this McVeigh example. But David not only declares that God is first, but David in this declares that God is loving. God is for us. He says things like, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. And be careful about turning that into a scientific verse. Because he says, when I was woven in the depths of the earth. He's obviously speaking poetic language. And be careful about making policy. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My soul knows that. In other words, this understanding that I am known by you, made by you, even in the secret place, which is a way of saying, I don't understand how this all came to be. But you do. Even in the secret place, 
that is far better than something that can be good. It's better than self-esteem. Self-esteem is important. But self-focus is dangerous. David's reflection, though, in this psalm is not ignorant of sin and evil. I told you that I would talk about sin this week. We're going to spend a number of weeks as we move towards Easter speaking about um, God's mercy and justice. Uh, The series is basically titled, Why Did Jesus Die? And I hope that as we get to the end of that series towards Easter, you will be able to answer, because I think some of you right now might have quick answers, but that's a question that if we ask many of you, why did Jesus die? You might have an answer that even as you say it, you don't really understand what you're saying. He died for our sins or something. And if you say, well, what does that mean? We're going to talk about God's justice and mercy. And David in this psalm is not ignorant of sin and evil. That which is other than God, in David's estimation, is distortion. David sees the loving, life-giving God as the center. And sin is when we see anything else as the center. That's one understanding. There's an early picture of how this operates. One of the ways that this operates is demonstrated in the Garden of Eden, with this story of Adam and Eve and the original sin. And so you know it, piece of fruit. Some have said apple. It doesn't say that. But as soon as there is sin, there is false judgment. And that, of course, was what God said would happen. You are not to know this black and white. That's for me. I'm the judge. And so, following Augustine, who says sin is the punishment of sin, get that? Once they sin, they sin more by becoming improperly judgmental. What do they do? They blame one another. Right? Adam blames Eve. First time that men said, women are the problem. Right from the beginning. And it was wrong. Right? Eve blames Adam. Well, and they blame the snake. How it all works. The devil made me do it. So I want to ask you, and I need you to be honest with yourself. When I'm honest with myself, there's ways in which I answer this question in in the way that brings conviction. If I were to ask you what's wrong with the world, don't yell it out, please. But what would you say? If I were to ask you what's wrong with this community, what would you say? If I were to ask you what's wrong with this church, what would you say? If I were to ask you what's wrong in your family, what would you say? And too often, the answer is other people. Other people. We can go with a spiritual answer and say sin, which is true. But were we pressed for examples, we would often bring up examples of the sin of others. Their ignorance of God, maybe. What they've done wrong. What's the problem with this world? What's the problem at your work? What's the problem in your home? What's the problem in your church? As you're released from you as the center, you, not in a self-bashing way, but in a liberating way, the first response you have to that answer is me. 
Now I can help you. Now you can help me. Now we can grow together. David prays of this loving presence of God everywhere, this knowledge entire, and turns in verses 17 and 18 to how precious are your thoughts. Were I to number them, they are more than the sand. It's so beautiful. And then he says, it's like he's writing this as he's praying and and having this devotional experience, this power of the Holy Spirit. Were I to number them, they're more than the sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. And then this turn in verse 19, and you can feel it in the reading, can't you? Oh, that you would slay the wicked. See how he does that? I'm feeling so close to God right now, but I'm confronted with a problem. The world's still in terrible shape. So that must be somebody else's fault. And in many ways, David is right. He has people who want to kill him. He's right in his judgment of others. I'm not saying it's appropriate or proper, but in terms of is he correct in saying that some people want to slay him and might have evil intent? Sure he is. David is identifying reality that there is sin and evil in the world. But he does overdo the other people are the problem idea. Oh, that you would slay the wicked. And then he tries to impress God. This is a religious thing, and David falls into it. He tries to impress God by telling him how much he's against people. God, people who are against you, I hate them. I hate them with a huge hate. And then David does this remarkable thing. This is, this is why he's so wonderful for us as a guide in the ways in which he is a guide. He recovers so very quickly because the energy in verse 23 is so much different and more mature than that desire for judgment in verse 19. Not looking to sanctify everything of David, but saying, what's going on here? Are all of your prayers exactly correct? Of course not. Here's what I want to happen, Lord. This needs to happen, Lord. (laughs) Do you know God enough that he might have a better idea than you? And David recovers so quickly from that and begins this self-reflection. And what it sets up is an acceptance. What it demonstrates is an acceptance that David has. He accepts that God is judge. And in this, he spiritually relaxes. I don't mean complacence, but I mean at peace. The judge is not us. The judge is not David. The judge is not you. The judge is not me. The judge is not a group of religious people yelling loudly about what's wrong with the world. The judge is God. And if the judge is God, there will remain in that judgment some mystery. So when Jesus speaks about judgment, he does things like talking about, well, he tells the story of the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Or the wheat and the weeds, where he says, let the evil and the good grow up together, because you can't figure out which one is. And if you pull up, you try to pull up the bad, you're going to destroy the good along with it. In other words, if you think you know exactly how God will judge, you're thinking too highly of yourself. I was at Indigo Bookstore in the last week and a bit. And um, it's not really a bookstore anymore. Have you figured that out? 
Christian bookstores did this first while they still existed, and for the most part, most of them are gone now. Bookstores in general seem to be disappearing. But there was a shift in Christian bookstores, you can see this in the United States particularly, where it's difficult to find a book, but you can find lots of trinkets, right? And Indigo now, that whole bottom floor, the one on Marine Drive, there's very few books. But if you want a chocolate letter with, like, with your initial, got that, except they were out of the T's. Always out of T. Right? T-J-A-M. That's all my family. T-Jam. None of them. Lots of X's. Something like that. You're a mug with your initial on it. And they have those round tables, right, that are like feature things. So they might have, here's current event books. But again, most of them aren't books anymore. You have to go upstairs to see the books. So the round tables have displays. And I was walking past one of the displays because it, it was journals, like empty notepads you could write in. And they looked really nice, like they were nice to look at and hold. And, but clearly they all had a theme as well. And I should have gone and taken a picture. I'll show it to you one day because I'll get it wrong. But they all said really nice, self-affirming things right on the cover. Not quite, I'm the master of my fate. That's a little aggressive. But more like, today's my best day. You know, that kind of thing. Right? And I walked by and I mumbled to myself. And Jennifer didn't hear me, I don't think, because she probably would be upset that I'm overly critical. But I walked by and I went, that's a whole lot of me. The whole lot of me section. The truth is, the church has lost much of its voice in our culture. One of the reasons the church has lost much of its voice, not that we are to be a dominant force, Culturally, we're not supposed to be the ones who are directing everything. The church does its best work when it's not the dominant force. If you long for the day when Christians are in charge of everything, we've had those days before. They didn't go so well. So one of the reasons the church has lost its voice is because of that. Because at times when Christians have been in charge, there has been perceived or otherwise, I think it's often real, a judgmentalism from the church to the culture that people have rejected outright. And even if it's right, it's, it can become at times with a harshness, a meanness, you know, making you terribly small. We dress it up now so we make it nicer. So, you know, if the church is, instead of in an old Gothic cathedral or something, the church is in a movie theater or a place like this, we dress it up by doing things like saying, friends, Right? Like there's this constant disappointment from God to people. And very many people have rejected that. And if you reject this key religious system in a given culture, often what you move to is a more self-centered, often, not always, can be a more self-centered view of the world. The reaction is that's too judgmental, and in some ways they're right. But if you press a little deeper into what people often choose instead of that, then we get caught in the me, me, me. See how that works? What's interesting to me is we, we like to accuse that me, me, me and go so religious people can shake their heads at the culture and go, people just aren't interested in God. They're just interested in themselves. It's all me, me, me. Of course, in many ways that's true. That's obvious. But what we should understand as Christians is that in some ways people were so keen to reject a religious system that presented a distorted view of the love of God so that rather than that, they chose this, and in some way it works better for them. Isn't that 
something for us to think about. So me, me, me. If you press a little deeper in our cultural understanding, it actually, and I know I'm making a general statement here, it's not always true, but you can hold on to it. If you press a little deeper, it's not actually judgment that people are against. You know that, right? Go hang out with your friends and see if they're really against judgment. It's not that we're against judgment. It's that we just don't want God or other people to judge us. We want to be the judge. Me. 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 We might not want to be judged, but human beings are preoccupied with judgment, with condemning someone else. In my reading this week, I came across a story from the New Yorker magazine in 1999. This was in a book I was reading on the cross, actually. The story is called Sophie's World, and it's about the reporter goes to a a school system in New York City where they're implementing tolerance programs. This is in, as I say, 99. And so they're, I guess, researching from the administration point of view, teachers and the rest, but the reporter does an intelligent thing, and they decide to speak to one of the kids. (laughs) So little Sophie is on a swing outside the school, and the reporter goes and sits on the swing beside her and starts asking her questions. Basically says, what do you think about all these new rules about what you're allowed to say and not say about and to other people? And Sophie says, she asks, but if you actually hate that person, so what? Would you really mind if something happened to them, like they moved to Alaska or the far end of the earth even? an eight-year-old. We don't want to be judged by other people, and we don't want to be judged by God. And David here offers the correction, something that he knows because he is known and loved, he can trust God's judgment. God's judgment is enclosed in God's mercy. And so verse 23 and 24, he turns and says, search me, Father. Know my heart and see if there is any offensive way in me. It's a perfect bookend to the beginning of the psalm which says, you have searched me and you know me. Do I have my favorite, one of my favorite quotes? Maybe not. I guess I have to read it for you. Listen to this then. It's a couple of sentences, so stay with me. I am not the judge. Jesus Christ is the judge. The matter is taken out of my hands and that means liberation. A great anxiety is lifted. The greatest of all, I can turn to other more important, more happy and fruitful activities. I have space and freedom for them in view of what has happened in Jesus Christ. Humbling ourselves under the care, love, and mercy and judgment of a loving God is liberating. It's freedom. Accepting that we don't stand on our own, not alone, not me, 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 but rather, before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. David is humbling himself. It's somehow the opposite of, and I don't have to interact with anyone. Anywhere that I go, you are already there. And you love me, and you know me, and I trust your judgment. And the way that I know I can trust your judgment is the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ. Not... I am the captain of my soul. I seek, I hope we all would, I hope I would, 
to battle that tendency to go me, me, me. And when it's presented to you as a virtue, which it will be in this world, find the loving way to say, okay, you go with that. I'm going with I am known and not alone. Even if it's the far side of the sea. Peter Yerkimik and Jim Galpin just returned last week from a trip to the big electronics show in Vegas. It's big. I haven't been there, but they told me that when they were there, one of the biggest items most featured were these devices that tracked everything about you. Wearable devices and sensors that measured everything. Your sleep, your exercise, your steps, your diet, your heart rate, your skin, the moisture, whatever it is. Peter's reflection on it was, it seemed cold and mechanical to me and lacking life. In other words, I'm not known, I'm just measured. So the Barry story. In his last days in the hospital, Morgan, do this in front of it. How many years ago was that? Twenty ten. In Barry's last days in the hospital with Marg by his side, in a regular ward and then in palliative care, Mark had a book that you were supposed to sign if you visited. I remember. I remember in prayer thinking how nice that was but also potentially how difficult that might make it for Marg because it was another reminder of who didn't come or who didn't sign. And that could inadvertently add to the pain. But you try to order things and you try to take care, and Marg did that very well. Barry struggled. He would get up and wander around at times. In fact, someone was assigned to be with him. He was having hallucinations. I went to visit him one time. How are you doing, Barry? Big guy, handsome right to the end. And he said, with this kind of fear in his eyes, he said, they took my blankets. And I'm looking, and he's laying there with blankets. I'm like, Barry. He's disturbed and upset and confused, and I'm thinking, what is he talking about? And I'm praying, where is he in his head? And then I realize as he keeps talking, where he is is he's in a cabin somewhere. And it's a basic cabin, and it's cold, and they've taken his blankets from him. And then, how he told me, it might be different for how Marg heard this, but in my telling, as he told me, the center of the hallucination was a laughing man. Where's the laughing man? He would say to me. At times I thought he might be upset about that man, but then I realized that it was different than that. It was even joy. He was intrigued by him and even encouraged by him. You could say, hey, Barry, snap out of it. You're in the hospital. You're sick. There's no laughing man. And Mark said, I think that might have been another guy in the room or something. I remember when my grandfather, who was 93 when he died, was nearing death. The year before he died, Jennifer and I were with him. And he could remember in much more vivid detail times 50 and 60 years previous when he was with my grandmother when they were younger. He could remember exact days, but he couldn't remember what he had for lunch that very afternoon. And I remember thinking in God's grace that this wasn't a problem, that maybe God was saying to him, to me, do you know that I'm with you now? I asked Marg, 
was there a cabin? And then she said, yes. And I don't know if I'll get the details right, but we had a little cabin on Grouse Mountain. And we used to do so much outdoors together. Barry was there. He's back there. And I prayed and I saw God in it. In the Holy Spirit, God was saying to me, Todd, I am with him now. And I know him. And in my prayers, God himself, Jesus Christ, was the laughing man. Comfort and joy even. And I couldn't get to where Barry was and Mark couldn't either and that's the pain. Sickness and hallucination and letting go. And God saying, I know him, I am with him. And David says, and oh, that you would say it. Search me, Father, and know my heart. And see if there is any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. We are known by God before we know him. We are loved by God before we love him. We are reconciled to him even while we are enemies. Let me pray. Come, Holy Spirit. Apply this to our lives. I will try feeble application. I'll tell people what I think they need. You will speak what we each need, and we trust you. Give us this grace, Heavenly Father, that we could be more mature than knowing that if only other people were different, things would be okay. Search us, O oh Father, and know our heart. Try us and know our grievous and offensive ways and lead us in the way everlasting. Know our minds even. We thank you for your judgment always enclosed in your mercy. May we be witness to the love of our Lord Jesus Christ, we ask in his name. Amen.